Welcome to Grazed in America podcast. I'm your host, August Horstman. If you guys just want to introduce yourselves and then we'll go from there. Me first? Okay. Um, my name is Sabrina Cope. I'm the marketing director for Cope Grass Farm. So I wear a bunch of hats, whether it's HR, uh, financing, whatever. Um, my main duties that I do is that um, I regulate like pricing for us and in charge of social media mm-hmm. and um, – also kind of responsible for research in a way for new products that we can carry. Cool. I'm Harry Cope. Um, I guess you would say sort of the founder of Cope Grass Farms, but anyway, mm-hmm. that's our business. Yep. Um, I'm much more comfortable with animals and fences mm-hmm. than I am with the business side of it and the people side of it. Yeah. But I'm getting better at it. So it's, it's interesting in all respects. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, I'm one of the old gray-headed guys now, August, okay? Yeah. I'm over 60. So it's kind of cool in the fact that I tell people this, I got a lot of friends that are retiring. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I have no interest in right, retiring. Yeah. And it's very interesting in what we do and the fact that there's a lot to learn and it, there's, it just keeps growing. Yeah, it seems like just from the outside looking in, it seems like you're still very much wanting to keep growing, learning. I mean, you're at every event. Is that fair to say? Not everyone, but I got to get my work done too. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it, the learning side of this is, is cool. It's fun. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, that's, you know, the older you get, it seems like the less you know. Mm-hmm. So let's go figure out how to do better. Yeah. And have you always been that way? Um, somewhat, yeah. I mean, just... We've we've tried new things quite sometimes. I've yeah. got I've got a lot of t shirts in my closet that you don't want, you know, been there, done that, got the t shirt, you don't want it mm-hmm. kind of thing. But yeah. It it's it's fun to see what we can do and it's gonna be more fun to see what we can get done in the future. Yeah. It's really neat. Cool. Yeah. Um you Sabrina, you is this your full time or are you Gives us kind of your plan to be full-time. It's the plan to be full-time. I currently work somewhere else, but mm-hmm. with what we have planned with um, new products and things like that, it's slowly but surely, especially for me because I'm adding on enterprises myself. Like I used to have ducks. Now I have chickens and turkeys and things mm-hmm. like that. So the birds are basically my part of Cope Grass Farm. And I'm starting to slowly realize that it's getting to be more and more full-time and the goal is to work full time for Coke Grass Farms, yep. but I'm hoping for it to happen within about a year. Yep. Cool. Yep. Got a goal. What is Coke Grass Farms? We haven't, we've talked, introduced yourselves. So, what is um, the is short form version that we put on the flyer is 1,300 acres of pasture, timber, about 200 acres worth of crops, mm-hmm. crop land. Uh, we are basically a pasture-based, trying to be as much of a regenerative farm as we can. Yep. Um, 
I do very little row cropping. We, the row cropping that we do is basically winter feed for our livestock. Mm-hmm. We have transitioned not completely away from hay, but we've, our goal is to get our winter feed for our operation to under 30 days of stored feed yep. out of a hay bale. Uh, obviously, this year, we ain't going to be able to do quite that well. Yeah. If we if it continues, the weather will help out. But, you know, it's been awfully dry, short pastures and things of that nature. But um, we're, we're an animal-based farm. Mm-hmm. Meat is our business. Uh, we basically direct market our pork. We almost don't direct market any of our lamb. Okay. Uh, we direct market probably 20 or 30% of our beef is mm-hmm. about what we do. So we're meat sellers as well as commodity producers, both. Yeah. And that's what we do. Um, so we're just trying to, the thing we've noticed here over the years, sitting here watching it and seeing what we do to grow our business and make it bigger and to where Sabrina can be here full time and maybe we can bring, bring more people on. It's like, unlike a row crop operation, I don't have to own everything in the county and farm at all. Mm-hmm. With the acreage we've got, we can grow a pretty substantial business off of that. Yeah, just with what diversity of enterprises? Just the diverse enterprises and stacking them. Yeah, and you know, it's the idea of, of if you're selling meat and that's what we're producing, we're no longer operating at the bottom rung of the value added ladder. Yeah, which if a guy sells commodities, that's where you are. Yeah, you sell the cheapest thing there is, and everybody adds value to it, and it goes on. It's kind of like. We were talking about some things like, you know, some of the processed meats. They're valuable. Yeah. You're, you're spending time and money, but you're adding value and you're increasing your dollars on a per acre basis. It makes mm-hmm. your business a lot. It, it's kind of the, one of the things about it that got my attention on the value added in the direct marketing was the fact that the price of meat in the store never changes. Mm-hmm. Unlike the price of cattle at a sale barn. Yeah. Fluctuating daily yeah and a lot of times it's like you're taking a big chance it's like if i know what the price is going to be at the end i can work my way backwards and make sure it's profitable yeah very true um so where's the farm located um you know we're we're about 60 miles straight west of st louis off i-70 okay about seven miles north we're on the north edge of the ozarks you go 10 miles south of jonesburg you in the ozarks yep and so we're we're in an area that uh, it's mostly all row crop. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be, but it is. Yeah. What should it be? It should be grass. It, it's too rough, too rolled. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, our fields in our neck of the world there, if they're not terraced, they're washing. Yeah. And so I'd, I'm of the opinion that, no, they shouldn't be terraced. Yeah. Yeah, they should just be. They should be what they are. Managed prairie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and that should be. Or that's a warm season grass prairie, or is that it's up that way? Are you getting into some of the cool seasons? Uh, the original prairies were native mixes. Native mixes. Yeah. I mean, that's what we've got growing on our roadsides. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the indicator of what's supposed to be there. If you pay attention to the roadsides when you're driving down the highway, it'll tell you what's supposed to be growing there, which is... Yeah, that is so true, right? And. Yeah. There, even during a lot of this, when a lot of the fescue pastures were burned up, you could cool. see, I mean, granted the road ditches might catch maybe, I, well, I guess they weren't catching any more water, but they were pretty green. Yeah. 
I mean, a, the road ditch from the pavement to the bottom of the ditch mm-hmm. is irrigated by the highway runoff. Yeah. Okay. But the other side of the ditch from the fence to the bottom of the ditch is actually quite dry because it's pretty steep. It drains. Mm-hmm. And so you just literally, if, if you'll, <laughs> it's hard to pay attention to the road ditches while you're driving without <laughs> driving in them. But uh, you can learn an awful lot as to what's supposed to be there. And that's one of the reasons why we've got all the, the native pastures that we've got because I drove by them for 30 years going, boy, that works really good. Why don't I have it on the other side of the fence? So we yep. have moved it to the other side of the fence, and it's working quite well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess we'll just jump into some of the natives, and if you've got stuff you want to add, just feel free to. Well, it's like one thing I wanted to add. How many acres are we converting so far? It's, it's over 300, isn't it? We're, we're getting really native. close to 400 acres of natives. We're, yeah. we're basically pretty close to 50% of our pasture land is native native mixes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when I say a native mix, our version of a native mix is about 10 species of warm season grasses, yeah. 8 to 10 species of native cool season grasses, and something in the neighborhood of 20 to 23 species of forbs. Yeah. It's, it's a very diverse mix. And the reason that we use that particular mix, it's it's not ours, but we borrowed it from some other folks. And the idea behind that is we're filling all of the niches that are in that sward for warm seasons, cool seasons, and forbs. Because mm-hmm. if you just have a native warm season grass, nature is going to put something else in there with it to get that natural diversity. Yeah, to get so, that. You know, they just... To take care of some of that growth curve slumps, yeah. right? I mean, you've, you've got... The, the native warm season grasses are very good in their window, mm-hmm. but there's times of the year that they're really not doing anything. Yeah. And if you got the different mixtures out there, and the thing we've learned and observed and kind of from everybody else is, is the fact that the more species you can have on a piece of land, the more total production you're going to get. Mm-hmm. You don't get the production per species as high as it would if it was a monoculture. But when you put them all together, the per acre lumber is significantly higher. Yeah. And were you noticing, because you guys are in a D3 drought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, have you noticed a difference between uh, the some of the fescue-based pastures that you still have and, and your native mixes on production? Oh, yeah. I mean, and our native, our, our fescue-based pastures – we're in pretty good shape. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you've you been would, intentional about management of them for well for, for years, long time. <laughs> yeah, and you know if in the ones that we got that we have abused, oh boy, did it show up. Yeah, I mean they you don't have the growth, you don't have the resilience. Um, if we as long as we'll manage the rest that the pastures need, and that's probably the biggest key to everything. It's it's not so much the grazing period, but it's the rest. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like you and I. We can work really hard for two weeks, but we better take a week off after that or we ain't going to be worth nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, just same thing. The pastures are the same way. But the the difference of it is is the cool seasons where it's just cool seasons, they, they've suffered. Yeah. Because we didn't get any rain in April. We had zero. Yeah. The peak growth month of the year for a cool season grass for us. No nothing. Rain. And that, it, I figured that one up. And I was trying to make myself feel better, and I didn't when I was done. <laughs> Uh, one thing I wanted to circle back to, you said 
10, roughly 10 species of warm season, 10 species of cool seasons, 23 to 24 species of forbs. Uh, what about a, a legume component, or is that? There's a couple of native legumes in that forb component. Mm-hmm. Um, what you're going to find and what we've been observing is that these native pasture mixes are a much lower nitrogen need, mm-hmm. unlike the cool seasons, the C3s. Uh-huh. Um, so that there's something there. Yeah. So, several of these native grass species actually fix a small amount of nitrogen. Mm-hmm. They'll pull it out, and I mean they, they actually do that. But but that's the whole thing of it is that that this native system doesn't have the nitrogen requirement even close to what a, uh, an introduced cool season pasture does. Really, I mean significantly less. Um, you've they've been several trials done with the natives that like somewhere around 40 units of nitrogen to get close to that production on dry matter production on a per acre basis. If you're using the cool season grasses, Mm -hmm. you're pushing 300 pounds Hmm. and that's if the water works. Yeah. And that's, that's an extremely high, not sustainable program at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're burning up soil, organic matter and everything else badly at that rate. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, the, the, the natives will do a lot more with a lot less. Um, and we finally, we, I, I did like every other farmer did. I started with the worst piece of ground I had and put the natives on it first. We finally put it on some of our best soils. And it's going to be interesting to see what they can do on good dirt. Yeah. And so we'll see. I'm rolling around that idea of establishing it on some ground where I'm finishing beeves that we took out of conventional type row crop friend of mine worked at sale barn one time he's been around a long time he said you know if you can go grow good corn you can grow crazy grass yeah and and it's you know the best soils were the first ones everybody took out put it into row crop Mm -hmm. and so literally at our house right there along the highway there's a, a strip of some of the best soil in the county Mm-hmm. it's still not a native because I'm still putting annuals on it because it's flat and I can farm it. Yeah. But it would be, that's where the natives are growing on the other side of the fence. Yeah. And showing me what they can do over there. Mm-hmm. I think, is that the field when we were up there with understanding ag? Mm-hmm. We were in? Yep. Okay. Yeah. It, it, um, it, it's that driving by and looking at it for 30 years is like, you know this works, yeah. And it works when it's hot, works when it's dry, works when it's wet, yeah. Just it's like, hmm. It's simple and it lasts. Yeah. The, the best part of it is like, I'm trying to build fences now that'll be hundred year fences. Mm-hmm. Trying to plant pastures that'll be two hundred year pastures if they'll just leave them in place and use them. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> the next generation doing it for the ne- the generations. Well, I mean, that's kind of one of the things that's somewhat unique. We ain't unique in any which way, but I'm the fourth generation on my farm. Mm. Sabrina's the fifth. Yeah. I live in my grandparents' house. Yep. I can show you where the log cabin was that my great-grandparents built when they homesteaded it. Mm-hmm. So we've been there a bit. Yeah. And so I've heard the stories about what it was like when they showed up. Mm-hmm. It's not like that today. 
Yeah. The goal would be to get close to that going back. Yeah. And the stories up were native prairie. Yeah. Uh, it just, there, there was a real quick story. Yep. I my mean, we got it all the time. <laughs> uh, on my grandpa Link's place, which is three miles up the road from our house. Mm-hmm. Okay. There was a story was told that when the first settlers came into that part of the country, they went over east, oh, 20 or 30 miles, brought back a high wheel wagon load of lumber, unloaded it, went back and got the second load, come back and couldn't find the first load because the grass was so tall. <laughs> Native berries. It was, you know, they, you know, man on a horse, it was yeah. that high. But it was just, you know, but all my life, I can remember Grandpa Link's place. We could play marbles in his pasture and not lose the marbles. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, that's what it had turned into. Yeah. With years and years of continuous grazing. And so the goal is get back there someday. Yeah. Get close. Cool. Um, establishment. Okay. Uh, are you, have you just been grazing to utilizing adaptive grazing to you and whatever happens happens or are you being intentional about planting it you know like taking a field and whatever like actually establishing it we're very intentional about it or at least i am because i want to see it yeah i realize i'm getting older and mm-hmm. i want to see it and i want to see it in production um so what we're doing is Sabrina would prefer that I didn't use the chemicals on it, mm-hmm. but I pretty well got, there's basically three options. Okay. We, we can use the chemicals, get it established real quick. We can do tillage, get it established on a slower rate because we've got to deal with the weed pressures, or we can overseed it and take a long time to get it, say five to seven years to get it established mm-hmm. through a lot of intentional management. Uh, I know what this feed is worth to us to have it established quick. Mm-hmm. And so I go to one of the first two choices and I go to the chemical side of it because I can use the chemicals once and it's done. If I work the ground with tillage, I lose topsoil. Yeah. That's the part where I draw the line. We're not going to let it go. Yeah. So I'll take, I'll take the evil of the chemical once and not lose my soil. Mm-hmm. Because I realize how long it takes to create it. And it's like, you can lose it a lot faster than you can make it. Yeah. So we just don't. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the sudden part of it. And we've got more control over it. And so even where we're establishing this real diverse mix, we have to be very careful about what herbicides we use and what rates. It, it's it's fairly touchy. Mm-hmm. But it works. Yeah. Um, have you tried... Uh, with bringing in hay, like we, we've done that. There was one year we took and uh, um, I managed to buy like ninety bales of warm season grass hay, mm-hmm. and so I decided I went and rented the NRCS's bale shredder. Okay. So I, I scattered more hay than I fed that year. Just literally ground drove around blowing it out on the pastures. Didn't get very much at all established out of that. Just didn't work well. I don't, okay. Just didn't work. Yeah, that was one thing. I mean, since I buy hay every year, mm-hmm. I, and I, now I've got to go further and further to get it, I was wondering about about that, like if I would buy a load or two of of warm season hay. But I guess it would have to make sure it was even mature enough, right? It's or, like a necessary, or 
There's like an evil, right? It's either going to be too mature. And it'll fall out before it gets to you. Yep. Or it's not mature enough to where it, um, I, I would, anything I think that you're going to get out of it that way is going to be a side benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, I've saw, we went down, um, the pasture walk tomorrow at Gatlin's mm-hmm. down at Wordeck. Yep. Um, he's done some work where he scattered the seed before he bale grazed mm-hmm. and let the cattle work it in. Worked very, very well. Okay. Um, but that was seeding it and allowing the animals to work it in and plant it versus relying on the hay to bring the seed. Yeah. Um, I would suspect if you got a choice, you'd be better off to have the hay bale for quality feed purposes and buy the seed and scatter it in front of the animals let them walk it in. Yeah. Versus having a much lower quality feed for your animals and maybe or maybe not having the seed component in it. Yeah. Good. That's good. Um, cool. Sabrina, wh- what do you think about all this? Uh, I'm learning slowly as I go because, um, I've bugged him about going on pasture walks because it's something I actually want to learn yep. because I mean, he can sit here all day and talk about like nitrogen and phosphorus and all this. I'm like, I do not understand what you are saying. Mm-hmm. So I need to go on these pasture walks. Yeah. So, um, it's really interesting. And, um, you know, dad will point out like different types of grass. It'll be like, Oh, that's like what? Like switchgrass. Like we were talking about switchgrass on the way here, how it's more, um, what you said, drought efficient, mm-hmm. yeah. drought efficient compared to Bermuda grass, right? No, the big blue and the Indian. Big blue. It's just okay. So it's conversations like that where I'm slowly learning because also people ask me questions about that, about like yeah. different types of plants that our animals graze on. I was like, I, like I'll admit it's like I'm kind of a little bit clueless about it because it's a lot of information you have to absorb. Yeah. So. I've only been doing it for 50 years. I mean, yeah, I only 50 that. years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have like negative 20 to catch up <laughs> on. <laughs> but it's. It's really interesting and also hearing about like different planting methods like him talking about Gatlin and having the animals stomp it in or just planting it yourself or just yeah. letting the letting the animals do it for you. Mm-hmm. So that all of that is really interesting to me. Yeah. So you grew up right where where you guys live, where you live, mm-hmm. Harry, yeah. right? Yeah. And I grew they, up listening to this guy. Yeah. Uh, but did you not, I guess, have a passion for it right off the bat no because i'm not gonna lie you know it's like when you grow up on a farm you're expected to help which is what i did Uh uh-huh and we had goats like this is gonna make sense i promise we had goats before we had sheep Mm -hmm. and our goats had a foot issue yep and we had to run them to the foot bath what like almost once a day every single day for a while it was a lot and so when you're a teenager and you're doing this, you're like, oh, my God, this sucks so bad. I do not want to be here. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I developed an interest more in, like, um, biology. Like, at first I wanted to be a physical therapist. So I was like, uh-huh. I, then I went through a couple classes, like, there's no way. I'm not going to do this. And mm-hmm. then, like, um, I my interest started to peak more and more into farming um, when I was at Mizzou and then dad called me one day and said, I think we have a chance to direct market our products. I think we're going to do really well. Would you have an interest in marketing them Mm -hmm. and doing that for me? And that's what I was at Mizzou for. And I was like, 
for marketing. Yeah, for marketing. Like my major there was just general agriculture. But, um, you know, at Mizzou, which did you go to Mizzou or I'm not yeah. sure. But, you know, it's like you go onto the ag school, almost every single major building has a sponsorship with like Monsanto, Syngenta, Cargill. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't really fascinate me. I was actually kind of annoyed by it. But, you know, everyone that's there, almost all of them end up working at those major companies. Yeah. But that just wasn't my thing. And when dad called me and said, we have a chance to direct market our products, I think we're going to do really well. And I was like, of course. Yeah. But, you know, I guess I was just an annoyed little teenage kid having to work during the summer all the time. I was grumpy about it. And then when I got older, I was like, you know what? This isn't half bad. Yeah. Uh, I talked with a guy yesterday for the podcast, and he was kind of the same way. It took him going to getting off the farm, working for another family's farm Mm -hmm. or ranch or whatever, and seeing how much that family enjoyed it and had fun with it, where then he realized that you could farm and have fun. Yeah. And... uh, so that that's kind of neat that it happened kind of two days in a row that I've. Yeah, well, that was that was a conversation we had that with her that I was. Um, I fell out of my chair just about when I told her. I says, "Would you be interested in this?" And she said, "Yeah, I've been thinking about this." And it's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and so it went from there because yeah. I was not expecting that answer. Yeah, you weren't expecting her to say. You just were asking her. Yeah, would you? Okay. And then like, yeah, I've been thinking about it. Oh, okay. Now we got something else to work on. <laughs> How many years ago was that? Uh, six. Was it six? No, close to seven. It was, it was seven years ago, and then about a year later, we were at our farmer's market. Okay. Yeah. And that is the Lake St. Louis yes. farmer's market? Yeah. It's, if it's not the best, I think it's probably one of the best in the state. Because, I mean. I'd say it's the best. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I was about to say, it's outside. It's basically in a setup where, like, clock tower's in the center here, and it's in, like, a cross formation. Mm -hmm. And um, our market manager, Matt, he has it set up in a way to where um, no one's really cramped in one space. Like, you're not really overwhelmed with certain types of vendor choices. Like, we have, like, we're a meat vendor on one side, and then there's a meat vendor on the other side. We actually have enough meat vendors to where there's about one on each side per cross formation. Really? So like it's us here, meat vendor over here, meat vendor over that way mm-hmm. and such and such. Yeah, yeah that's neat. I, I've heard it's like the the one to get into. Like yeah. once you've made it to the Lake St. Louis market, you've made it yeah. to the farmer market. Well, it, it's Yeah, and Cody Carr's yeah. there and he he really likes it. He's he's not like right next to us. He's basically like straight across that way mm-hmm. and um he i think he just became a full-time or what like last year yeah. mm-hmm. um but i think the year before that he was like off and on and he he really likes it but he says oh i just wish like he had extra set of hands like his wife or something like that but i know that she has her hands full too of managing yeah those hog barns yeah 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 and no, it, it is a, as a market that the lake st louis farmers market because uh when covid first hit we ran out of product, like about everybody else. I mean, just flat out. Mm-hmm. We couldn't get animals harvested. So we had about a three-week window. that We had zero, nothing to sell. Yeah. So we told Matt, says, we got nothing to sell, so we're not going to come. 
So we took those three weeks and we toured around the state to the rest of the farmers markets to see how they oh, were really? running, mm-hmm. and just took a chance to go learn. Cool. And we, and we come back and I told Matt when he got back, I said, "Now don't you get too fat headed about this, but you're kind of on top of the pile by quite some distance here, buddy." And and it's just that's you know if you know livestock and you watch animals move, you sit here and you watch people move through the market. It's the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. They it's set up to where they can just flow through the market. They can come and go as they want. They don't have to come in one gate and out one gate. Mm-hmm. There's four ways in, four ways out. And so it's just, it's neat to watch. Yeah. I mean, and we'll run in excess of 3,000 people a day. We'll really? Come the market. Mm-hmm. Is that your main way of moving product? Yes. Yep. Like that's our main storefront. We have an online store, um, but our main customer interaction is the farmer's market. And wh- who do you ho- have your store with online? Barn to door. Barn to door. And yeah. then so you have, so somebody could order and then pick, choose pick to pick up. up at the market. Yeah. Or is that the only way to do it? Uh, well, you can do one. You can buy at the farmer's market or you can pre-order it online mm-hmm. and then just grab and go and then leave. Like that's especially popular during the winter time when it's like 30 degrees out. You don't want to hang out outside. A lot of people pre-order online. They grab their stuff, go and then leave. It's every weekend. Every Saturday? It's yes. it's April through basically October every Saturday. Then November through January, we're set up for every other weekend. Mm-hmm. It's kind of one of those deals. We start the market in our coveralls. We end the market in our coveralls. And in the middle, we sweat some. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God. Yeah. Um, do you do home delivery then with your barn-to-door stuff or no? It depends. If someone gets like a quarter or something to that effect, um, we'll drop that off to their house. Mm-hmm. Um, the main issue that we run with that is that we really don't have the time for it because he's running the farm, running around everywhere who God knows where. Like he'll be, yeah. I don't know, he'll be on Steelville someday. I, don't, I have no idea. But basically, <laughs> um, and I work somewhere else, so it's kind of hard to do home deliveries. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it could probably be done. But I also have to dedicate time to other Cope Grass Farm tasks that I need to get done. Yeah. But um, if it's a customer that, like, I've known for a while, then, yes, I'll deliver to their home. But most of the time, whenever I meet up with delivery, it's a quarter of beef or it's a restaurant that's getting some of our bologna that they use for their picnics is what they use. Hmm. So that's the only time I really meet up with someone. Yeah. But, yeah, hopefully – Future goal is to have at least a delivery day at least once a week. Yeah, that's a lot. Plus sitting at a farmer's market yeah. on another day. Yeah. But I guess that's the way the bills get paid. Sales. Yeah, it helps. Yeah, that, it helps. That was one of the things that it, about the farmer's market that the first time I ever went and came back home, I told my wife, I says, I have a completely new respect for a secretary. <laughs> I had no idea how hard it was to be nice to people for four hours straight because I've never done it. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's become a challenge. And yeah. It's interesting. And most of what we do at the farmer's market, I tell people, Sabrina sells stuff, I run my mouth. Mm-hmm. And mostly we're talking to people, answering questions and educating people. There's, yeah. there's a lot of questions that will come up and, you know, some of them are pretty bogus and some of them are just serious. They folks they don't know or don't understand. And so you you're just doing your best to try to educate people. Mm-hmm. And 
the one thing that we've kind of discovered as much as anything is most of our customers want to see our smiling face Mm -hmm. as their farmer. Yeah. Yes. They want to know who is producing their food. And, you know, it's, we do something every year that we have a customer appreciation day. We just had it two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. We invite our customers to come out on a Sunday afternoon for four or five hours. And we'll just, I'll take them on a tour for about 30 or 45 minutes, show them, just put them in my truck and drive them around, show them what we're doing and explain to them. I mean, we show them the good and the bad. We show them the babies right up to the compost pile. It's got the dead animals in it. I mean, tell people, if you've got livestock, you're going to have dead stock. You better have a place to put them. Yeah. And that's what we do. And it's, we are, every year we have a few people, usually one or two, maybe couples that are returners. But most of the time it's somebody that's new. They just want to see, and you show them what you do. And it's like, if you show them what we're doing, and they've been there, and they've seen it, yeah, it's awful hard for somebody to pull the wool over their eyes and tell them that you're doing something else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's just kind of, if you've seen something, hmm, that's not what they're doing. Yeah. Just being transparent has helped a lot, especially yeah. um, COVID, especially brought on the importance of transparency because I'm sure you probably remember you probably went to a Walmart and you saw very little meat on the shelves or almost no meat at all. Mm -hmm. And like almost every millennial ever, that's how I found out that there was going to be a supply shortage, at least upcoming when I saw a meat shelf in California, I believe it was completely empty. And I was like, it's going to happen here that's why I was like, hey, we should book those processing dates. <laughs> we should book and those And the dates. guy in charge wasn't smart enough to do that. Well, you did after, after, I, after I kept bugging you for it. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, we went from <laughs> two to three weeks out on processing dates for animals getting harvested mm-hmm. to six months. Two months later, we was a year out. Yeah. You were in on that. And you just like, yeah. how do you manage this? I booked yeah. all of 2022 or all of 2023 dates. I still had to book them in September of 2022. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're, you're just like throw a number out there. It's like, yeah. okay, who's going to fit this spot? Somebody will. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The transparency thing is huge, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's it's so many. A lot. And, and if you'll explain to people what you're doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, I mean, there's certain things that you're doing on a farm that, you know, you really don't want to explain that. Like if you have to dehorn somebody, that's not a pleasant ex- activity. It's nothing, yeah. but it, it's an, but it's kind of necessary versus a cow that's got horns that can hook you. Yeah. You just, okay. But there's, you know, you explain to people what you're doing and everybody, yeah. they, they, they get it. They're not stupid. They've got questions and they want to know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not that they're, ig- what is it the rule is that um, the difference between stupid and ignorant is mm-hmm. if you're ignorant, you don't know any better. Yeah. If you're stupid, you know better, but you did it anyway. Yeah. And kind of a lot of the goal is to move people from being an ignorant person to now you got the right to be stupid. Yeah. No better. Mm-hmm. It's your choice. Yep. And just that's kind of one of them goals. It's like, I'm not, we're going to move you over to where you're going to choose to be stupid here. And then you can go ahead. It's your choice. Yeah. Um, so label claims for your meat packaging. I mean, it's. My kind of whole philosophy is come out, see it, you know. It's pretty close to it. I mean, we we say grass-fed, grass-finished on our beef. 
mm-hmm. um, as and well as our too. lamb. Yeah. Okay. Uh, pastured, naturally raised pork. Um, what we things that we do is we do it. We we produce an acorn finished pig, mm-hmm. and that's bluntly a pig that's grown up to about two hundred and forty pounds on a conventional diet, and then we put them in the woods to eat acorns for at least sixty days, and that sixty days is as long as the amount of time it changed for the change in the diet mm-hmm. to change the fatty acid profile in the meat as well as change the flavor, mm-hmm. and so. Um, my opinion of it is I would much rather eat a pig than a deer. we got plenty of deer, so the deer can go eat acorns from somebody else. Yeah. I'm going to put the pigs in the woods, and we're going to finish them out. And it makes an excellent-tasting pig. Mm-hmm. And just I tell folks that it's kind of funny. You say, our pigs have a great life and one bad day. Yep. And they get yeah. it. Yep. <laughs> they do. It just – but it's, you know, they'll go from 240 to 300 in that 60 days. Just on a 300-pound pig. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And – I get that the like organic or you know why aren't you label like why don't you right. have that claim or I'm like I don't um, I'll answer that one my opinion on organic <laughs> organic as a term has been fairly bastardized mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of places that are come underneath organic labels and that's not what I'd call it organic farm by any stretch of the imagination but yeah. they qualify. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell folks that there's certain things that organic certification won't allow us to do, as in some fertilizers if we need to to fertilize our fields. Yeah. Uh, we can't do it. The other thing is, is we've got 8 to 10 miles of fences. If I was an organic farm, I could go after maintaining those with a weed axe and a weed eater. We ain't doing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, the, it'll outrun me. I couldn't get it done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's some things that we do it. But we don't we don't routinely use antibiotics. We don't routinely use herbicides. Yeah, we avoid a lot of that stuff. We're getting a lot closer to the point of I've just got I've got a mental mindset block on the vaccination thing, mm-hmm. and I think we're about ready to the point where we're going to drop that. Where you're going to drop vaccinating any of our livestock? We're, we're not vaccinating our hogs. We're not vaccinating our lambs. She doesn't do anything to her birds. No. Yeah, um, I'm still gun shy about necessarily some of the reproductive vaccines on the cattle, and I think I just need to get over it. Yeah, uh, I dropped respiratory and black leg of my cows, and that bit me in the ass. I haven't I haven't had that one happen to me. The black leg is the one that's the scariest one as far as that. But I don't know that it's absolutely necessary. The reproductive one, I, th- I got into one of those years ago, and we still don't know what the problem ever was. Yeah. Was that when you had a 60%? Yeah, we had a 60% conception yeah, rate on conception a set of cows. Rate, yeah. But it's, it's kind of one of those classic cases. A good friend of mine told me, he said, every major wreck I've ever had was self-inflicted. Mm-hmm. And he's right. That's exactly what I did. I lined up all the stars to make everything go wrong, and I did. Yeah. And they did. So just, it's, you know, part of this is on all this disease and vaccines and everything, antibiotics is, and we know it to be a fact, is like, if our animals are healthy and nutritionally sound, mm-hmm. they don't get sick. Yeah. And, you know, so if they're not that, that's on me. Mm-hmm. What I do. Yeah. Do you bring in 
different cattle because you do some custom grazing, right? We do. We do. We were doing some custom grazing, and I am doing some partnership grazing with a guy right now. And but basically, those cows don't come and go. Okay. They just they just come in. Um, if a guy is going to be bringing animals in and out routinely, you're probably not going to be able to take that approach. Yeah. Because you don't know how the animals were handled, how nutritionally sound they are before and after coming and going. Yeah. Um, that's you're in the commodity game and you probably better behave that way. Yeah. Because you, you could you could get spanked pretty good. Yep. Agreed. But that's one of the differences of what we're trying to do with where we're direct marketing the meat. Mm-hmm. Um I'll tell folks, I says, my simple answer for our quality control is if I won't eat it, you won't get it. Yeah. And 100%. in all honesty, I did not tell them anything, but I told them everything. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to get anything I wouldn't eat. Yeah. And it's just, and we have a guarantee on it. If, if there's something wrong with it, please bring it back. Yeah. You Let just don't know. get, you just yeah, don't just get don't to eat, eat the whole half meat <laughs> first before you decide there's something yeah. wrong. Yeah. But, so, I mean, yeah. And we want to know that. Mm-hmm. If there's anything wrong, please tell me. Yeah. Cool. Um, we'll change just a little bit of gears here while we're kind of hitting around the cows. So your cow herd, your custom grazers, mm-hmm. is that all one herd? No, we're running, we're running the custom cows and our cows in one group together. You're running them yeah. together. Just because it's like my biggest problem I've got right now is I've got too many herds. Yeah. And especially with it being dry, we're basically about ready to put them back together. And so it's the too many herds thing from a grass management point of view is a very large problem. Yeah. You know, so the cows are managed the same way. We run them together. Mm-hmm. Just put them together. And uh, what is your cow herd base our cow herd base that we own is basically a red angus beef master with some centipole thrown into it mm-hmm. trying to keep the heat tolerance in there uh, one of the issues that we've got is uh is fescue endophyte intolerance mm-hmm. but the fescue problem that everyone has that has fescue in the state of missouri for the most part um, these cows that we run uh are partnership cows those are coriente cows mm-hmm. um those are a good deal more tolerant of the heat, mm-hmm. but even those poor girls can get overrun by fescue endophyte. Um, yep. the 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 owner on those cows had told me he'd never seen them in seen those cows stand in the pond. I had them on a farm that I had rented. It put them in the pond last summer. Yeah, it was that ugly, and I didn't realize it was that. We call it hot fescue. Yeah, I didn't realize that that farm was that bad. Yeah, so. We've got to change management. We need to be, we need to leave that farm by the end of May. Yeah. And not come back till September. Yeah. It was a bad year for hot fescue last year. There was a lot of cows losing like the bottom third of their tail. Yeah. uh, From people, you know, just kind of in the group side. Yeah. And I've I've got cows, some, you know, I had some of my cows of our owned cows with that group of Coriani cows this time on that farm. And they, we're showing a lot more stress than the Coriani cows. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went back to one of the things that we do 
that helps a lot with that is we feed our mineral mix, which is basically sea salt, and then we put cayenne, pepper, and garlic into it and mix that with some charcoal. Yeah. All of that helps. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mitigate it. It does not eliminate it, but it certainly helps their tolerance. Yeah. So that's a biochar? Well, or or biochar is is charcoal finds that have been inoculated with nitrogen a lot of ways so it's close but it's just ours is just charcoal finds just straight charcoal finds and we mix that up and you know mix the sea salt with it but it's put it this way it's hot yeah we put there's a we put a lot of cayenne in there and it's the point behind the cayenne is cayenne is a vasodilator yep the endophyte is a vasoconstrictor. Mm-hmm. That's why the cows stand in the pond because they can't get the blood flow to the extremities. And like you said, tails fall off, t- yeah. you know, feet when it's really bad. And that's why they're in a pond to cool off. Mm-hmm. So you help them out with it's kind of like me. I'm almost allergic to pepper. I get close to it, I start sweating. Yeah. Just, I'm not a spicy foods person. <laughs> it's actually really funny how intolerant to spices he is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, you know, it works for the cows. A friend of ours, Doc Kincaid up at Harrisburg came up with this idea, and he put it together, and mm-hmm. and we've stolen it from him, and there are several of us that use it, and it it helps. Yep, and you, you don't keep that year-round. I don't keep it year-round, but I'm probably about to get to the point of doing it mm-hmm. because the end of fight, um, that's where you, you lose tail switches and toes and ears and things like that in the wintertime to frostbite because they don't get the blood flow to the extremities to keep them from freezing. Yep. And so if you think about it, the udder is an extremity as far as milk production, especially if a guy's fall calving, getting the cows to milk more in the winter. It's kind of one of those that probably, if you've got the endophyte toxicity problem, you probably need to be running it to them year-round to help them handle it. Mm. Yeah, didn't think about the udder. Well, I mean, you know, um, the fetus, the inside of the uterus, thats a, they call it the second skin. Mm-hmm. So it's an extremity. And a lot of the same things go on. A um, good friend of mine made the point that we were talking about birth weights on fallborn cattle. They tend to be lighter. And some folks have gotten pretty extreme on s- selecting lightweight fallborn calves. His point was, he says, if you'll think about it, the extra lightweight calves are from cows that are more intolerant of endophyte than the rest of them because mm-hmm. they didn't get the blood flow to the fetus. Huh. And if you think about it for a little bit, it's like, you know, he's right. So it's it's, it's classic. Whatever you're doing, stay in the middle of the road. Mm-hmm. Don't go wandering off too far to either side. Stay in the middle of the road. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just, just stay right there. Yeah. When selecting for certain... Yeah, just, just don't go way off the charts. Yeah. And and the part of it is, is just like select for animals that are adapted to what you're doing. Yeah. And, you know, people talk about that they want to have fescue adapted cows. My answer to that is, why do you want to have a cow that's ad- adapted to a poison? Mm-hmm. Why don't you fix the poison problem? Dilution. Yeah. Hmm. Just, you know. That's fes- a good. Fescue is a very good grass. In its window. Yeah. Its window is not 365 days a year. Yeah. So natives. You know, it, it's kind of like you put them all together and it, it it works. Yeah. It's a little tougher to manage, but in a lot of ways it's easier. 
Yeah. Yeah, that was managing. We haven't been out to tour yet, but I had fall calvers, spring calvers, replacement heifers, steers, all in one group. And it's just, it gets pretty, pretty difficult. Yeah. If you're trying to manage everything for the optimal part for the individual, you wind up with a million small herds. Yeah. And you're running yourself to death. And then you're not managing your pasture like you should. Yeah. So it's kind of, you kind of got to balance it up. Yep. What's your, so your cow herd, that's a spring calving herd? Or do you have a fall? We have, we had a fall herd and we have since removed that one. We strictly have a, basically a late May, June calving herd. We're summer calving. So 45 days. We try to. We've, we're at 60, and I've been down to 45. We'll get back there, but, but that's where we're at. We're, we're running easily 90% of them in about the first 30 days. Mm-hmm. So the, that's where if, if you've got into fight fescue and you try to do a May-June calving program, go ahead and shoot yourself. It'll be over. <laughs> Just don't do it. Yeah. Um, that's, that May-June calving window is for all the forages – with the exception of end of fight fescue, yeah, you know, when when that one comes into the window, you almost you're not forced to fall, but you better go there, yeah. <laughs> Just because I mean it's the challenge of the heat and the, the lack of the adaption, your reproductive levels are going to fall through the floor. Yeah, it just it ain't going to. You can make it work, mm-hmm. but you're going to spend a lot of money on feed. Yeah, just keeping them in condition. Being in the condition and tolerance, and you know, you know, if you don't have shade and you don't have access to ponds for the animals to get into, yeah, it won't work very well. Yeah, you you will not be happy with the results. Mm-hmm. You're going to get results. But you're not going <laughs> to like them. <laughs> you're going to have a t-shirt for your closet. Yep, fair enough. <laughs> um. With, so, partnership cows being Corianni, your cows being Red Angus Beefmaster, Cinepal, how do you decide on a bull? Right now, it's a black-hided bull that's mostly a pure Angus bull to, to create a black crossbred heifer that we can sell. Mm-hmm. And then we're taking those steers through our meat business. That's where we're going with it. I like the idea that we will eventually get to the point where we've got percentage Coriente probably in all of our cows. Mm-hmm. And then they'll be pretty well uniform. We'll see. It, it, it's cow business. It takes forever to get anywhere. You know, yeah. it just does. Mm-hmm. If you think you're going to breed yourself, breed into a direction, that goes back to getting the Yeah, I've thought that for the past couple of years, and each year I've learned something different. And so, like, I'm been yeah. – Genetics-wise on cows, if you're wanting to make a change, go look around, find somebody that's got what you want, get them. Yeah, just because start there. It, it's going to – if you know, it just it's two years from a baby to a baby. Yeah. Okay. If she breeds. Yeah, that's, that's the long time frame. And then that generation interval is a long time. I mean, with the sheep and the hogs, it's a year. Yeah. It's one year. We can change things, and they've also got multiple births, so you got more than more animals to choose from. With cows, it's one. 
Yeah. If the thing's working well. <laughs> yep. You know, so it, it, it's the cow thing is a lot slower. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, if you want to make drastic changes, uh, it's very difficult to expand your cow herd off of your own replacements. If you, if you'll throw out the stupid ones and the open ones, mm -hmm. you're pretty close to just maintaining your cow herd. Yeah. And that's, uh, kind of under my management, right? Grass management, herd management, uh, my replacement female, you know, at 15 months or whatever, when the bull goes in for 45 to 60 days, right in that window, you know, I'm at about 50% conception yeah. on my heifers. Then on my three-year-old's first calf cows, my conception rate would be 50 again. Really? Okay, I would, I would have figured you would have, If you got the lighter conception rates on your yearling heifers, mm -hmm. if you're not overfeeding them and pushing them too hard, mm -hmm. our results have been quite a bit better. We've been in the 70s and the 80s on that cow breeding back yep. for, the, for her second calf. Well, I guess I should interject. I haven't been doing this, you know, f long enough where I could have the, like, years of data to right. put against it. So that would be probably th two to three years of yeah. rates. The one thing I would suggest on that situation, most people want to feed their first, their yearling heifers and get them all developed and spend money on them at that point and getting them all bred the first time. Mm -hmm. I would seriously suggest that you don't. You allow, you grow them as best you can on pasture and allow them to decide who the fertile ones are and breed. But if you're going to spend money on a cow at any point in time, spend it in the window of time, keep, keeping her in excellent flesh after she calves the first time until you can get her rebred. Mm -hmm. That's the place to spend money on a female getting her bred back versus as a yearling. Yeah. Because you've already got a lot of time in her, and if you can get her bred back to have her – second calf as a three-year-old mm -hmm. she's pretty good about staying with you from then on yeah that makes a lot more sense it, it just that's the window of time the heifer that doesn't calve or doesn't breed for you as a yearling mm -hmm. makes a great great grass fat yep an excellent feeder yep you haven't and you haven't spent hardly anything at all above feeder cattle input costs on her yeah to get you there yeah and she can once you prag if you pull bulls right she can yeah. continue to run with them as yeah. a feeder. So yeah. that's how the program. It, it's a low input system that uh, it's pretty profitable when you do it that way. Yeah. Uh, people talk about their heifer development costs, and I look at them kind of funny like, two shots, what's the problem? <laughs> and they, they're like, huh? I says, that's the heifer development program. We might give them two vaccine shots. Yeah. We, we're not doing anything else. And, you know, if your females aren't developed and aren't growing enough, look around at your genetics and your forages and see if something's out of balance here. Yeah. Those those females, well, you'll have 70 and 80% of your heifers cycling at a year of age to breed. Yeah. And it's in, in reality, it's like we, we run on the principle. It's kind of like I forget who. I think Dick Divin might have made the comment. He says, you know, the females – are performance-oriented. Mm -hmm. The bulls can be predictive, 
But on the females, dance with the ones that brought you. Yeah. The ones that work, work. Yeah. And the ones that don't, look around and see why they didn't. Yeah. I think I one thing I've done is I've got my herd too small in frame size. Could, and could very well be. I think that's an issue that I'm trying to take it back, go up. Yeah. I mean, you, you literally, to quote old R.P. Cook down in Tennessee, uh, he wants them smaller. I want them a little bit bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want them about as big as I can get them and that they will breed naturally to their classmates as a year and breed back for the second calf with not much inputs. Yeah. And then they'll, you'll find out that in, in this part of the world, that's got a thousand to 1100 pound cow. And it's the difference of it is, is you can have a tall, thin thousand pound cow and you can have a short, fat thousand pound cow. Yeah. And that, that you can also have the same thing on a 1300 pound cow. Mm-hmm. There can be almost 10 inches of height difference in those two cows. And one of them will be fat as a tick. And one of them will you can count ribs every day of her life. Mm-hmm. You know, and so there's a difference in which animals will stick around and which animals will work for you. Yeah. So it, it, there's a type of animal more so than a size of animal. Yeah. And your pasture and your management will dictate your size. Yeah, that's uh, kind of being able to look at it all in, as a system, right? Yeah. Because I mean, that's the key. Is, that, is don't, that's a mindset change. Yeah. If your mindset is your farm is going to provide what your animals need to perform versus what you purchase in as feed or inputs, mm-hmm. big difference. Yeah. Big difference in your pocketbook, too. Yep. Yeah, the, and I guess looking at multiple systems and how they interact together, right? Nature, yeah. carbon, you know, su- cycles. That's that's the part about this thing that makes it interesting. You you <laughs> you got to know quite a bit about a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, that's just managing a biological system. You yep. got to know quite a bit. And about the time you think you know it, nature re-educates you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's where I get, right? I try to learn about all the systems. You got to learn a lot about that. And then my book work and marketing, that's <laughs> where. <laughs> and you see why I brought Sabrina. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's where I struggle. Um, so we talked about cows, chickens. Chickens. Yeah. We're gonna let's run down some of the enterprises. Layers, broilers, both. I have both. This is very new. Um I have my layers right now. I just want to walk up to one, just squeeze it. It's like I know there's an egg in there. You're old enough. <laughs> like hurry up. But uh but my meat my meat chickens, they're they're still just little pullets. They're just out mm-hmm. on grass and um in like their own little pen. It's it's really interesting watching them interact and how they forage in that small little pen. But yeah, one thing that I'm kind of experimenting with, it's called tree range checking, you know, like the word free range. Uh-huh. I use the word tree range. Cause I saw what magazine was it in that you showed me? Oh, I can't a, remember which that one was it was. It was an acres magazine. It was an acres magazine. That's this farmer in Minnesota. 
he's originally from Guatemala. I can't pronounce the name and I can't remember it either. But um, I didn't know this, but chickens are originally like a jungle bird. Mm-hmm. And they roost in trees. And then dad told me that when he was growing up, my grandma, she's what, grandma's 95 now? 95? My grandma's 95. She still has a couple of chickens on her own. She doesn't have much like she used to. Yeah. But when dad was growing up, the chickens were just out and they would go in the trees. Well, grandma would tell dad and my aunts and uncles to just go get them out and they would take a stick and just go like this, just beat them out the tree basically to get them out to put them, put that up. Uh, yeah. Put them up at night. But um, mm-hmm. that's one thing I want to kind of experiment with is see if they'll actually roost in trees, like what they're allegedly supposed to do. Yeah. But my turkeys already take up that spot. The tree. Yeah, they and, take up that tree. <laughs> and the tree. I had a few chickens uh, that I bought at a small animal sale. And, yeah, they would they would li- roost up in these trees out here at night. But oh, my gosh. I don't – I mean, just had a handful of them, but never found an egg. Right? That's the thing when they – I guess if they're yeah, yeah, in they're, something they're, like that, you have to figure out where they're laying the eggs. Yeah. I'm kind of in that situation with my ducks right now because my ducks, they basically have permission to go wherever they want. They don't wander off. They mm-hmm. do their own thing. But I have a small pen for them as well when they go in at night. It's around electrolet, uh, yeah, electronet, sorry. Yep. Electronet fence. And um, they'll lay some of their eggs in there. And now it's at the point to where I have to check like multiple hiding spots like under the propane tank, in the garden tire, underneath sticks. It's everywhere, and it's like, why can't you just pick just this yeah, just one, one area and make it easy for me? But, you know, it's never meant to be easy. Yep. I <laughs> it's never meant to be easy. Nope. If you want, like, lives, raising livestock to be easy, then just keep, like, at least five. Make it easy <laughs> on yourself, at least. Small batches. Yeah, yeah. Small batches, yeah. And then but, you get a new batch every time the coon stops in has one. For oh yeah, yeah. You'll be always changing batches. Yeah. Hearing the word raccoon triggers me with the issues that I've had. <laughs> yeah. So the poultry, though, yeah. so this will be your first set of egg layers. Yes. For the offer, like for your, that'll go to your meat business. Yes. Duck eggs. Duck eggs, I've had, um, I've had, I think my first round of ducks, I still have them. I'm planning to keep them for the long haul. All my ducks are just... Um, egg layers right now. I do have pekings that come in for my meat ducks. Mm-hmm. Um, my first round of ducks I ever bought, I think they're around four four years old, maybe. Bet, right? They're about four years old, and they're still laying. Oh, wow. So they're still productive. And um, I've been selling duck eggs for around that time, around four years. And okay. um, when I first started selling them, I was the only vendor that had them. But now we have, like, other vendors that have them for, like, like hobby birds and things like that. Like, they don't have many, and I don't really either. But um, it's really interesting seeing the comparison, or I'm excited at least to see the comparison between my duck egg and my chicken egg. Because one thing that I didn't really think about was how the egg looks whenever you crack it open in a skillet, how clear the egg white is. And that's mainly due to their diet. Mm. But... My chickens are a whole new enterprise. Um, I wasn't, I'm not going to say I was bullied into it, but it was very heavily suggested by other customers to get chickens. (laughs) To get chickens. Because we had a chicken vendor, but they they do something else now. And um, they were like, well, we really want chicken. I was like, 
Okay. I'll so, get chickens. <laughs> so that was meat birds too. Eggs yes. and meat. Eggs and meat, yes. And I don't know why they stopped coming to the market. I think it was mostly due to feed costs. It was getting a little too high for them. Yeah. But um, for me, it's one of those things that my birds get a very specific type of feed. I give them a no corn, no soy. And I just found out it's non-GMO. Well, so that's naturally. another thing that I can add on there. Um, the the guy who makes my feed, his name is Jim Nutter. He's in oh. Middletown. Yep. He I makes my feed and stuff from him. He's a he's a great guy. Knows a lot about feed. And I told him about my feed request. I think he's been making my feed for about two years now. Mm-hmm. And um, he kind of like scratched his head and was like, "Why?" And I was like, "Well, it's just something that I want to try." And see how it works. And mm-hmm. my birds really like it. And it's all my birds eat that no corn, no soy, non-GMO feed that I give them. Plus with being out on grass and such like that. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things that I kind of have to bite the bullet on when it comes to cost. Yeah, feed cost. Because I will I know how Jim makes it. I know where he's getting it from. And I'm willing to pay for it. Yeah. So, and plus like with almost all animals, if they have a healthy diet, they look healthy, like shiny, for example. Mm-hmm. It's like my my birds, they look shiny, pristine. Mm-hmm. Like I have some Pekings right now, and you would think that a Peking wouldn't be white, especially since they like to roll in the dirt. And it's like they look so pristine and white that I could call Aflac and uh, have a duck. Have a duck <laughs> for their, their mascot comer- for yeah. their commercial. Yeah, well, her turkeys when in the fall when we when we get when we load them up, take them. To, getting processed it's like mm-hmm. they look like a show bird yeah you know this you've been around the cow business a long time you know what show cat look like mm-hmm. they're clean polished and shiny and oily and just that's just what they look like yeah i was on an organic dairy once up in wisconsin up at part of uh, um oh geez, midwest bioags gary zimmer's place it was an organic dairy mm-hmm. been in a couple of dairies in my life most of those cows weren't shiny those cows looked like show cows. Yeah. But the feed that those cows were getting was very much a nutrient-dense feed, high-quality feed. I mean, and it flat came through in the way the animals looked. Yeah. And you, you've been around the livestock business off enough. You know, if the eyes are bright, noses are wet, coats are shiny, it's working. Yeah. You know, that's things are working like they're supposed to be. And her birds are like that because – I get to be the guy who loads up the birds. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> so, but I mean, you get, I mean, you just get to hold them. They're, those birds are very healthy. Yeah. They got great coats on them. So, you know, they're good shape. Awesome. Um, let's see. Pigs, we talked a little bit about them. You're a farrow to finish, right? Yep. And do they, are you farrowing outside, inside? We do a poor job of farrowing outside. Okay. Our our litter sizes are not that good because I haven't figured out exactly what I need to be doing. Uh, we're trying to be a, basically in April and mid September farrowing. So you're going to two windows. Outside. So one sow will have well one sow have two litters then. Yeah, we'll try to get a sow to have two litters a year. Okay. When we were in the commercial hog business, we were at like two point two litters per year. Okay. So but you know we're just that was when you're farrowing, but. Um, we, our sows, our hogs are basically red wattle uh, Berkshire hybrids, mm-hmm. cross between, between those two heritage breeds. Um, they're very much adapted outdoors. We're working on a program 
to get it to the point of where we're able to grow our feed and let the hogs graze it. Um, when you've been around this business as long as I have, you got a lot of crazy friends, and they send you information because they know you're crazy. Mm-hmm. So Tim Reinbot up at the University of Missouri, I've known Tim a long time. He found an, a USDA bulletin from 1914, and he sent it to me. And it was about nothing more than handling the labor shortage on the farm in Iowa because of World War One. All the men were gone. Mm-hmm. And how did they handle at that time, there was a lot more labor, you know, har- corn harvest by hand. Yeah. It means everything was done that way. So what they had figured out was a system for raising pigs to where they let the pigs harvest their own feed. And so we've come to the conclusion that we can do the milo. We can grow milo. So we this this no corn, no soy diet, people want it for a reason. Basically, it gets them out of most of all the GMOs and gets them away from most of the herbicide and everything else like that that happens. So we found out that the pigs could graze the, the milo in the fall, mm-hmm. in the fall and winter, but what do we do for the summer? This bulletin that Tim found talked about grazing cereal rye in the spring and summer. And so we figured out how to kind of close the loop mm-hmm. for the whole year. And it's, like all good experiments, it's only going to take me two years to actually get it in place and happening. Yeah. <laughs> but we're working on it. And it's like that one gets really, really interesting. Yeah. And putting together something like that, just the idea of being able to graze a pig on his own standing feed, and I don't have to go harvest it and grind it and pack it to him. Yeah. Now a pig is in the class of my cattle and my sheep. Yeah. And the milo grazing that you use that for winter feed for your cattle yeah. and your yeah. sheep currently. Yeah, the milo, the milo is is one thing. We added this up here a while back, and it's like we've since we've been doing this. I think twenty six years now. Yeah. So we got four years to go before it becomes mainstream because all technology <laughs> takes thirty years to be adopted. Mm-hmm. You know, so we'll see if that happens or not. But yeah. there's so you, there's more interest in it, but it, it's. You've it's been grazing Milo for twenty six years. Yes, for winter yeah. feed. Yeah. Yes, holy yeah. cow! Well, it's I like I went to a. It was actually the soy. Was it sheep and soil health seminar? It's the one that's held at Jeremiah Markway's place. Okay. And Ray Archuleta was there, and you know Ray has a farm up at the Ozarks area. I think it's up in the Ozarks. Um, yeah. He was talking about because um, you know if you've heard Ray mm-hmm. speak, he's like the biggest cheerleader for soil health ever in, oh, a yeah. good, in a good way. Yeah. But he's always like, we have to cover the ground, cover the ground. It lowers the soil temperature. And they were talking about haying. And I was like, why don't you just plant Milo to graze? And he looked at me like I just solved a mathematical equation. <laughs> and I was like, you're literally talking about covering the ground. I'm trying to help you here. And he was like, that's really interesting. I was like, well, right. If you want a PowerPoint on it, it's, it's on my phone. I saved yeah. it on my phone, by the way. I was like, I can send it to you right now. Or if you want to see it, just let me know, and I can send it to you. And I don't know if he's done it yet, but yeah, he looked very fascinated by that. I mean, that's the Milo gra- the grazing standing grain crops. People get upset about the fact that we're feeding grain. Mm-hmm. To a grazing animal, it says, if you paid any attention to what a grazing animal eats, they naturally eat a significant portion of grain because these grass plants yeah. have seed. Mm-hmm. It's in the head. Yeah, the animals know that's where the energy is located. 
That's why they fatten in late summer because of the grain there. So it's kind of one of those, don't get hung up on that principle. Yeah, because that was one thing or something I was wondering or, um, you know, with making label claims, one reason I don't is because yeah. I don't want to get trapped in a grass-finished label that'll, I mean. Exactly. Yeah. We, I mean, we don't feed the grain, and, and our grass finishing program is we don't feed the grain. We don't graze the standing milo with our finishing animals. Mm-hmm. That's for our cows and calves and our ewes and their lambs. Yep. Get, them through the, get our breeding animals through the winter. And it, from a cost point of view, it is at least half the cost of hay. Mm-hmm. And with the price of hay right now, it's about 20% cost of hay yeah and it's so but the, the the grass finishing part the label thing like you were talking about there is um you want to explain to people what you're doing and why yeah and then people if and if somebody is hung up on the fact that you can't do that mm-hmm. that's fine then don't do that i'm we're certified through the audubon society as mm-hmm. part of, one of their conservation ranching programs for what we do promotes grassland birds yep and one of their requirements was you couldn't feed more than, uh, I believe it was 1% of body weight in grain per day to your cattle. And I told them, I says, when we do this, it says, this is one of the programs we have. We've been grazing this milo for a very long time. It works extremely well. I will not change that for your program. It is, no, it's a, it's a, a yeah, that is a total game breaker. Mm-hmm. And then when we figured out that I was feeding about 0.4% of body weight per day, they were like, oh, it's all great. I says, thank you. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's it's a it's a tremendous program in the fact that you don't spend a lot of time and money and equipment making stored feed. Yeah. You grow it. It's standing there. You graze it. Yeah. But there's so many people who can't get over the fact that you didn't grow it, harvest it, store it, and feed it, that they won't even try. Yeah. And it's like, no problem. Yeah. You don't have to stay in business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the, is it too late? Well, let's see, it's July 20th. Yeah. Is it too yeah. late to plant Milo for uh, winter feed? I planted it three days ago, and I'm going to plant it day after tomorrow. So no. So no, the window's not out. <laughs> hey, you you don't you for the winter feed, you're planting it to grow it. You're growing grain. Yeah. That's what you're trying to get done. Grow about as much grain on a per acre basis as you can within reason. Because mm-hmm. the energy is in the grain. Yeah. Okay. So the later you go, the lower the, the yields are going to be and the less likely you make a head and make grain. So but you can still I mean, we planted a lot of stuff six weeks ago that came up two weeks ago. Yeah, and literally, we turned a set of sheep in on a pasture uh, on a field that it about a third of the field came up normal, was growing decent. The other third was halfway, and the other third of it didn't even come up. Yeah, so that's the field we're going to plant in two days. We're grazing everything off. The milo that was there will come back, and it will tiller, make a head, and I'm going to plant into the thin spots. Mm-hmm. And try to even it up, and it just—we've it, done all kinds of things this year that we did not want to learn how to do. Yeah, 
and just, you know, I, I don't like learning new things any more than anybody else does, especially when I'm forced into it. But here we go. We're going to learn. Yeah. I really doubt that sentence. You don't like learning new things? Not when I'm forced into them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very interesting. Interesting. <laughs> um, do you ever apply like some sort of broadcasted weed or cereal into the bottom or does that leaf canopy of the milo the milo is the canopy of trying to grow a cover crop into a standing milo crop is very difficult because you have such a leaf canopy Mm -hmm. and then it doesn't milo or grain sorghum is a perennial it's not an annual yep so it is killed by a freeze unlike corn corn matures and dies yeah it does that before it freezes milo Keeps right on growing till it's free freezes and it kills it, which is the beauty part of it. In the fact that milo leaves, once they're frozen and die, are basically hay on the stem, mm-hmm. because it was a good quality program. We have tested milo leaves in February out of grain fields. They tested ten percent protein. Hmm. They were better than almost all the hay that anybody ever made. Yeah, and so. It's got its advantages, but the thing that needs to go with Milo versus what we've done is you need to have some green to go with the brown. You need to bring some protein with it somehow. So we're working on programs to where like wide row Milo, like 60-inch Milo, Mm -hmm. and grow green crops like oats and collards and sunflowers and things like that in the middles to balance it up Mm -hmm. and um, come up with better quality feed for the winter for basically all of our species. Yeah. I mean, that's, we had a great plan for that this year. We had a great plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have a great plan at the moment. <laughs> Just redirect. It, it, it failed to rain. So we're working on other angles. I mean, this like we planted the first time. It didn't work. We're planting here in the middle. If that one doesn't work, come the 15th day of August, we're going to plant a lot of wheat and rye and barley and pray for a fall rain. Yeah. <laughs> so, and if we don't get that, we're kind of, <laughs> yeah well hopefully you get a lot of rain after this planting i don't think we're gonna get anything next <laughs> week it's gonna be hot <laughs> um so with planting milo for your winter feed source um what kind of quality will like that mixed grass native bring to the table for winter grazing the quality is lower okay the thing of it is we can take and supplement those mixed grass natives with the proper amount of protein supplements mm-hmm. and get along quite well, especially if we're dealing with either non-lactating females or females that are pregnant uh-huh. because they got lower requirements. Now, if you got your stalkers and your younger growing animals and your finishing animals, you got to come up with something better. We, we got to have multiple different kinds of forages yeah. to do different things for different animals. But, the thing of it is people people think that the warm season grasses are only summer forage. Well, the folks that have been farming and ranching west of us, two states west of us, have been using those things for 150 years. Mm-hmm. They know how to use them. They supplement them, and it works out fine for them. It works here, too. Yeah. The difference we have here is we have more rainfall, so we want to take advantage of those those dry stockpiled warm season forages earlier in the fall if we if we have the fescue don't graze stockpile fescue in the fall 
stockpile fescue is the most valuable after the first of the year. Mm-hmm. If you got other things to utilize then, because fescue will hold its quality because of that waxy coating on it, mm-hmm. so much better into the dead of winter. One of the most valuable places for fescue as stockpile is coming out of winter into spring. Yeah. We get into this washy grass syndrome where it's so, your cows don't stand behind your cows because you're going to get it. Yep. Uh, they'll crap right on you. If you got enough of the dry brown in there, that that's one of old Cook's theories, R.P. Cook down in Tennessee. He said, you know, he keeps reminding me, and I apparently don't learn very well, but he said the secret to green is brown and the secret to brown is green. You need some of both. Yeah. And that causes you to have more mature grass way later in the spring than what we've been taught. Yeah. The, the concept of people talk about the turnout date they turned out on the grass. Yeah. There shouldn't be no such thing. Yeah. People have asked me, when you turn out, it says never went in. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't. Yeah. We don't, we don't come into lots and feed. If we do anything, we'll space bale feed. And set up out on our porous pieces of ground, and we'll just move a wire between the bales on that spot. Yeah. But the goal is to never, ever come into. If I come into a lot and feed, we are in a really bad spot. Yeah. Real bad. I'll start asking questions. You'll ask a lot of questions because I'll be saying a lot of <laughs> bad things. <laughs> but I mean, that seriousness that's that keeps an animal's diet consistent. Yeah. If if an animal's eating hay today and they're turned out on the the 10 inch tall lush green grass tomorrow. That's like lighting a fire in their insides. Yeah. They don't know what to do with it. That was one thing I did. I saved a stockpile instead of, uh, so normally, right. I'll graze all my stockpile. Then I'll go to like bale grazing or an unrolling, but, and then once the spring starts to break, right. Start moving fast and cover Mm -hmm. a lot of ground. Well, this year, when spring was breaking, I around March 1st, I started, I left 100 acres of stockpile. Made a and, huge difference. Yeah, made a giant difference. So then come the 15th, the 20th, you know, first day of spring, we're calving, we're starting to calve, we're on stockpile with green coming through the brown. That calving on that is like, take a vacation. Yeah, you know, you're not digging baby calves out of the mud, and it, you know, the, if if a person's going to feed hay, it's expensive. Yeah, it totally makes sense to feed it in the window of time when you can maximize the utilization of it, which is fall. Yeah, and you know, and just so it it, it it's backwards to what we instinctively want to do, mm-hmm. but when you sit down and think about the big picture on making things work and flow, do it that way. Yeah. If you have to, I mean, if you have to feed and, you know, and the worst thing a person can do is like this, you know, your guys are out of a drought here now. I mean, you had more water in the last month than we've had all year, but um, we're still in it. Yeah. Is if we, if we get rains and it starts to bring on our pastures and they start coming on, the worst thing that we can possibly do is graze those fresh growing pastures hard. Yeah. Because we will bankrupt the root reserves of those plants going into winter, and they'll be horribly slow coming out following spring. The best thing you can do when it starts raining is make sure you keep feeding hay if you're feeding hay. Do not turn them out. Yeah. 
I mean, bring them in, or at least pick a particular area to sacrifice. Yep. I mean, because if it's somebody said this one time, it's very difficult to grow grass with a cow standing on top of it. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> yeah, very much. Um, wait, I guess we haven't talked about your sheep yet. Okay. Do you want to, we'll wrap up with talking about your That's sheep. Fine. Sure. I mean, our, our sheep are a composite breed. Uh-huh. Um, they're basically a Katahdin based breed that got some Florida native in them. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the animals that basically the hopping brothers had down in Oklahoma. Yep. Um, like I've talked, should be talked about Jeremiah Markway. Jeremiah's got a herd of them. Mm-hmm. He was smarter than I was. He went and bought his from hoppings. I tried to create mine off the animals I had. So, Jeremiah's way out in front of us, but it's still very similar. It's a, it's a smaller hair breed. The ewes will normally run like about 115 to 120 pounds. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, the Florida native in there is a wool breed, but they're in there for parasite tolerance and foot rut problems. Mm-hmm. They're very tolerant of both of those. The Florida native is, as a breed is concerned, they really aren't a breed. They've yep. never they've never had a breed association, I don't think. But if you can imagine sheep surviving in Florida for four hundred years, uh, they have to be parasite tolerant, <laughs> literally. Because can you, yeah, you, you, can can you imagine? I went to Florida to Carol Posley's place and looked at some of hers. Can you imagine sheep being on three inch tall Bermuda grass pastures in Orlando, Florida, set stocked, no less. Mm-hmm. You couldn't dream of a worse parasite situation than that. Yeah. Not possible. She had sheep there that she literally took them not too far. They're right there. They're at, uh, where's the, where's the Florida University at? Gainesville. Gainesville. Okay. She's right there at Gainesville. Okay. So she took, had those, the, the vet school from Gainesville come out and do fecal samples on her sheep. Mm-hmm. Because she knew nobody would believe her. Yeah. So she got an independent party to come out. She checked her ewes, checked the rams. She had sheep that literally, under her grazing and management program, had a zero parasite load. <laughs> zero. Relatively impossible. Those keep those sheep simply would not host a parasite. After 400 years, the ones that did died. Yeah. So it's kind of one of those classic cases. And I, I just like, that's unbelievable. But a Florida native happens to be a sheep that uh, they cannot count past one when it comes to raising lambs. Mm-hmm. That's all they raise. And a Florida native is, is unique and also in the fact that if you've been around sheep, you got a flock of sheep, you got a bunch of ewes, a bunch of lambs, it sort of sounds like a symphony, all kinds of noise, all kinds of blatant going on, mm-hmm. ewes blatant, lambs blatant, everything else. You get around a set of purebred Florida natives, you can hear the birds. They don't say nothing. Hmm. And the reason being was those sheep were raised in the Florida Everglades down south. Those sheep were the primary protein source for wild hogs. If a lamb bladed, he got eight. Mm. they don't, they just, it was one of those, what? Yeah. <laughs> They're quiet, but, you know, so the, the idea was you took the, the that resistance 
and added it into the Katahdins uh-huh. to get a, a productive pasture-based animal. And they're not extremely productive. Our lamb crop's not that great compared to a lot of folks. But I'd sure put my labor bill up against most folks. Yeah. Because, you know, when we lamb in the spring, it's like, if you're doing pasture lambing properly, Mm -hmm. you find yourself standing in the middle of the pasture, spinning around in a slow circle going, I'm supposed to be doing something, but I don't see it. (laughs) The best thing you can do is not go in the pasture. Stay out. Yeah, that's going to be a struggle when I add sheep, I think. (laughs) What's... It's. Have you ever had sheep before? Yeah, I had twenty ewes from uh, that I bought from Jeremiah, and then okay. I bought two rams from Bruce. Yeah, and I bought two dogs, and I was moving them in f- five sections of poultry netting, and uh, sp- in the spring flush. So then I was moving them daily, and I got fed up with it and. I was also working for somebody else and doing a meat business and cow calving cows. And I said, I'm not going to be able to do this good. So something's got to go. So I got rid of them before they lambed. Okay. Next time you do it, get a hundred or 150 hits. Yeah. That's what I also <laughs> thought. I was going to fence and like, I feel like if I had 20, I could do 200. If, if you've, Yes, and it's not a whole lot more effort. That's what I was thinking. Uh, I mean, the trick of it is, is um, if you're going to do it, make it worth your time. You were putting all the effort in, yep, and you weren't going to be worth your time. Yep. Um, the sheep, the cool thing about sheep, they're very profitable. They're very profitable on a per, per acre, acre basis. Yeah. And the nice part about it is, when one dies, you look at well, there was two hundred dollars that, that died mm-hmm. instead of looking at a cow that went, oh, there went two thousand dollars. Yeah, so that's a Corey Innes for that that last part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in, in seriousness, but um, on the dollars per acre thing, if we have to choose or if I have to choose, the cows leave. Really? Isn't, there's no competition. Um, they go. I've told my banker that, and he looked at me like I'd lost my mind. I says, you don't understand. No. Mm-hmm. Because I can get the cows back, get yep. the sheep back. Kind of hard to do, you know. It just you get to go buy three hundred head of ewes right quick. It, it just doesn't happen, or at least not those kind of ewes. Yeah, the kind that you want or yeah. you're after. Yeah. yeah, and I probably made the mistake by getting rid of my twenty, but no, I'm, I'm serious. When you when you do it, plan it on a bigger scale. Yeah, already you're already doing things on scale on resting else. Just do that, and smart money probably would be you go find the person that you're going to hire to manage him. Yeah, and they show up the same day. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, they show up about three weeks ahead of schedule. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, yeah. you got to get figured, things figured out. But, I mean, in, in respect, that was what Jeremiah did on his. Yeah. He When he bought them, I think he bought 150 ewe lambs. Mm-hmm. He didn't have sheep. He went from zero to 150. Now, I went from zero to 400 on goats. In one day, but that was also a mistake. <laughs> well, yeah, that's how I learned. I learned the hard way. That's how he learns. He learns the hard way. <laughs> Literally. That's like I said, Jeremiah used his head. He went and bought good animals from a source, paid for them. But four years later, he was at 400 ewes 
mm-hmm. and I wasn't. Yeah. You know, that just used his head. Yeah. You know, and just, it's an investment. I mean, the, the cool thing about the sheep as an investment is they will basically return you your investment mm-hmm. first year. Yeah. Okay, we can't do that on anything else. Pigs, mm-hmm. yes. But we got a lot of different feed source. I think, we'll honestly think that we'll figure it out that we get it done right, the pigs will probably outrun the sheep on a profit per acre basis. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because of the reproductive rate. Yeah. Now then the key of that is making sure that we can grow all the feed we need for the hogs. Yeah. And then also all the yeah. direct market. Yeah. The sheep, the sheep, the cool thing about a May lamb instead of sheep is you have never had anything fit the forage production curve like that. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Totally, the repro- the animal's feed needs fits the forage production needs. And then you've got an animal that goes away mm-hmm. at the early part of winter. And you've got a dry, pregnant female sitting there looking at you for the rest of winter. Taking care of dry ewes in the winter is kind of like you drive by and look at them and go, you girls look really good. See you tomorrow. <laughs> Everybody's up, I think. Yeah. You know, they're just, and I mean, cows are good in the winter, but they aren't even close to being weatherproof like sheep. Mm-hmm. Really? You can have one of them cold, horrible rains that just soaks you. Yeah. And your cows are out there all humped up and look like a bridge. Yeah. Your ewes get up off the ground, shake real hard and once, and they're dry. Go right to grazing. Just, uh, it just they're kind of, the best thing about the sheep is the fact that it's still the sheep business. And almost nobody wants to be in the sheep business. I'm going, thank you very much. Stay on your side of the fence. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It, it just, they're, that's, that's the drawback to the sheep business. It is the sheep business. Yeah. If you have problems with people laughing at you or making fun of you, don't do it. Mm-hmm. But other than that. Yeah. I feel like counting money, I guess. No. Counting <laughs> money is more fun. But it's, you know, <laughs> they do yeah. the, they do their job of keeping your money together better than about anything else. Yeah. yeah. And when it comes to the direct marketing for sheep, like we can't keep it in stock. It's It's like it's there and then it's gone. Really? Yes. There's a huge interest in it. And there are other farmers who disagree with me that, or at least they say that they, they can't get their ground lamb to move. It's like, we can't keep it in our freezer long enough before it's gone. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting more and more inquiries for like a whole lamb or a half a lamb. And it's yeah. like, I didn't, on, I honestly did not expect that. I thought that the beef was going to be more popular. Really? But, and yeah. like my main processor dropped, uh, dropped doing sheep it won't even do it anymore Mm -hmm. well one of our processors um davis meets up in jonesburg they do it but one of the managers says that um she's like i don't understand why you do it Mm because it's it is expensive yeah Yeah. it's what like uh, almost 150 dollars for one lamb about 150 dollars so about almost half the what we charge for it yeah but she's like i don't understand why you do it it's so expensive and it's like well we have people that are interested in it and yeah, we've got it's we've got a fair grow. number of customers. There's a fair number of customers that can't eat beef or pork. Mm. They have allergy problems. Uh huh. They can eat lamb. Mm. And I think that a lot of their beef and pork allergy problems is that they're allergic to what 
those animals are fed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, it, it's one of those, I don't want to make you sick, but try some of our pastured products yeah. that are not fed grain. Try some of the beef. and You know, I've, I've got a landlord that he had a lot of folks that had egg allergies, but they could eat his eggs because <laughs> they weren't fed corn and soy. Huh. So there, there's... There's a lot more to nutrition and food and diet than uh, majority of our dietitians probably know. I, yes. I would be very um, not complimentary to a dietitian because they're not nutritionists. Yeah. That's not what they're taught. Yeah. Now, the ones that will go ahead and educate themselves after school will get along fine. It's kind of like the nutrition training. I mean, I got an animal science degree. Okay. I've got more nutrition training than doctors do. Yeah. They yeah. Then uh, human doctors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More nutrition training than most veterinarians do. Yeah. In, in that respect. But, and, but I kept learning a lot after school. I mean, when I got to college, I wanted to go back and slap some professors because, like, you told me just enough to get me in trouble. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of one of those cases, yeah, I got a degree. <laughs> I had to keep learning. Yeah, and that's where it's like I've learned probably more after I've graduated, right, with a degree in animal you, you science. Do. Yes, you will, mm-hmm. because and but and that's no that's not a slap against the university in that respect. No, but it's a slap at us if we thought that when we graduated we knew what we needed to know. Yeah, you know you 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 have to keep learning until they throw dirt in your face. Yeah, and it was one of those things, like, I don't know if I would have gone down the path I'm down without going there and going down the path that I was yeah. taught. Could I mean, it is, you know, you're talking about being a first-generation farmer versus me and, and fourth. Yeah. You don't have to unlearn a lot of this stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff I've learned. It's like, I tell people, it says, un- unlearning something is really painful. Mm-hmm especially if you've been doing it a long time and you're sure it was right. And now you found out it's not right. Yeah. Now you just moved yourself into that stupid and ignorant category. Because as <laughs> when I'm dealing with people that are kind of the generations of, but they're my age, right? It's can be perceived as a slap to their entire family. It, exactly. And it, it's, it can, it's not that. Right? No. That's not my intentions. It's, okay, the problem with that is their family, it's their problem. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, they're sure that just because you do something doesn't mean you know what you're doing. Yeah. And just because you've done something a long time doesn't mean you know what you're doing. You've been doing it a long time. You could do something poorly for a very long time, and you're still doing a poor job. Mm-hmm. But it, it's... You know, there's always room to learn and improve. Yeah, you've got to you've got to be open minded enough to know the, the old saying that uh, if it ain't broke, don't if it ain't broke, don't, don't fix, fix it. it. Mm-hmm. I go run on another three. There's another line that goes with that: break it, make it better. Yeah. Okay. Now then, that opens it up to we're going to try things. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't work. Yeah. I mean, on our farm that I grew up with. There's two big upright silos, though there was three, but now there's, we sold one. I'd filled those silos my whole life, and I finally figured out that's excellent feed. 
it's the most expensive feed I could come up with. Mm-hmm. So I quit. You know how well that went over with my dad? <laughs> Not well. Poor Walden. He, 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 he was very tolerant. He didn't kill me. He probably wanted to way more than once <laughs> because I did things like that. It's like, we've been doing this a long time. Okay, whoa, wait a second. We're not doing this anymore. Yeah. There's a better way. Yeah. And we've migrated around. I mean, this this concept of feeding hay for 30 days a year, dad's been gone for 20 years now. Mm-hmm. And he you know, he saw me get into that part of it, just get started into it mm-hmm. from feeding hay or silage four and a half, five months a year. Yeah. Just the fact that we were able to pull that off. Yeah. The first time I ever grazed a set of heifers through the winter without feed, he informed me, you cannot do that. <laughs> like, we're going to find out. Yeah. At the end of the winter, he was at least gracious enough to say, that's the best looking set of heifers we've ever raised. Mm-hmm. They look like show cows. I got lucky. I hit one year on perfect <laughs> rescue stock. I mean, they were, <laughs> they <it>. look great. <laughs> but we found out we could do that. Yeah. And so we started changing. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, that's just as we went along. I've, I've explained this to my nephew sometimes. It's like, you do realize this is how we used to do things. And I, I tell them, and they look at me like, have you lost your ever-loving mind? <laughs> I says, yeah, you came along here at this point. Mm-hmm. This is what we used to do. Now we do this. And they're like, you know, we keep changing. Yeah, change. You know, Experimenting. And, you know, it's kind of like somebody said, you know, We've always done it this way. It says, yeah, but you don't have to keep farming either. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you just kind of got to back off and slap somebody. <laughs> and that's where it starts. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Just lead by example, I guess, is what I, you know. And I got one of my nephews. He's very much a silage guy. And he says, one of us is going to go broke. I says, no, we're not. You're going to do it that way, and I'm going to do it this way. And the two of us ain't going to change for the other one. The difference of it is, is who makes money and who don't. Mm-hmm. He likes equipment. I don't. Yeah. That's just a different approach. Yep. Fair enough. Well, I really appreciate it. Where can they find you? Social medias? Me. Uh, <laughs> social media-wise, we're on uh, Instagram as Cope Grass Farm and then Facebook as Cope Grass Farms. Okay. Um, Working on developing a website, finally. We found uh, a designer who I was referenced to from a friend. Okay. So we'll have an official, actual website up. And I'm really excited about that. Cool. Do you <laughs> have the URL? No. She's she's building it. Like I'm actually supposed to have a meeting with her like next week. Next week. About the second stepping stone. It's like cool. three parts. So I'm really looking forward to it. Awesome. Uh, emails, anything, just reach out to you on social media and you'll go- take it from there. You can do that. You can reach out to us on social media or if you want to email us, you can email us at copegrassfarm at yahoo.com or okay. um, if you want to call us, um, you can call my cell, um, 636-262-6733. His phone is practically surgically attached to his hand. So... He loves to talk on the phone all day. Mm. So um, you can talk to him about anything. Um, is it fine if I give sure. your number? Uh, dad's number is 636-262-0135. If you leave a message, 
I'm certain he'll get back to you. Like I said, <laughs> phone is surgically attached to his hand. Yep. Probably be buried with it. Well, if his iPhone way. doesn't completely shatter in half. <laughs> I, I tell my mother, my 94-year-old mother, okay, says, I'm not that smart, but I know a lot of smart people. Yep. And they're gracious, gracious enough. Most of them will answer when I call them. Mm-hmm. So I ask a lot of people a lot of questions. So this question answering thing is like I've bugged a lot of people over the years, so I'll help if you can. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate it. Thank you guys very much. And I Thanks guess for we'll, having us. We appreciate oh, it. Thanks for yeah. having us now. Appreciate no it. No problem. We'll have to do it again. Okay. Yeah.